Hi there, and welcome to Indigari's Global Conversations, a podcast about how traveling the world shapes our lives and our perspectives. I'm Melissa Biggs Bradley of Indigari, a company I founded on the belief that how you travel matters. I'm sitting down in conversation with some of the most inspiring and innovative people I've met while on the road. They will share stories about their travels and how they lead lives of passion and purpose. Welcome to the conversation. Having worked in luxury magazines, media, and travel for almost 30 years now, I've met, among others, a lot of very beautiful and very famous people. But I'm glad to say that my guest today, Christy Turlington Burns, is much more than just a pretty, well, actually, in her case, a gorgeous face. She modeled from age 14 until she was 25, at which point, when she was one of the most famous models in the world, she quit to go to college, where she studied comparative literature and Eastern philosophy. It was a long way from the runways that she, Naomi Campbell, Linda Evangelista, and Cindy Crawford dominated. After college, as sometimes happens in life, Christy found her next calling through a near tragedy. In 2003, after the birth of her first child, she experienced postpartum hemorrhaging. Had she not been in a top New York hospital with access to its birthing center, she might well have died. In the years since, Christy has become a formidable advocate for safe pregnancy and childbirth, directing documentaries on PPH and eventually launching Every Mother Counts, her nonprofit devoted to lowering the incidences of preventable pregnancy-related deaths around the world, a number that's shockingly high even in the U.S. The former supermodel now has a master's degree in public health from Columbia. She's on the Harvard Medical School Global Health Council. She's written books on yoga, and she's been a partner in skincare and clothing companies. Oh, and she also runs marathons in her free time. There's even more that may or may not surprise you about Christy, including her lifelong love of travel and where it comes from. I hope you'll stay tuned while we talk about it all. But okay, let's dive in. I I know that your father was a commercial pilot and your mother was a flight attendant for Pan Am, so you clearly have travel in your genes. But how do you think that your upbringing set you up to become the global citizen that you are today? I mean, it really, from the moment that I was born, I think, um, you know, from the, the various artifacts and things that my parents had in our house growing up, I mean, my mom had these kind of leather cushions, you know, from Morocco in the market and, you know, Nefertiti had, you know, like they have all these like bits and pieces everywhere and there was a story to everything. And so I think it was kind of, um, even before I understood what they did or took a flight, I think it was just part of, you know, what I was surrounded by and, and the culture that I, you know, I just had a lot of curiosity about all of these things. And, um, and then of course, as early as we could, we started to take advantage of, you know, the wonderful, um, employee benefits of Pan Am, um, which was that we could fly free anywhere in the world at any time. And, um, oftentimes that meant first class, which as little kids, um, was not wasted on me. I definitely, <laughs> this is cool. And Pan Am at that time, you know, it, it was still a luxurious, um, experience to fly at all, let alone yeah. 
um, in first class uh, in the 70s and, and early 80s. So, um, you know, getting that experience and, and understanding the difference in the privilege that came with that and that also the negative side being that if a flight was oversold that we would be standby or we'd get booted off or we'd have to sit in airports for, you know, hours and hours to figure out what the plan was going to be. But my parents were always kind of on the fly like that. Um, and I think I kind of learned through their example that I could roll with it too, that I, you know, I've always had an attitude if I miss a flight, it's not meant to be. Um, even in my early days modeling, if I missed a flight and I didn't have a cell phone at that time, I would just rebook my flight, get to the next possible, you know, you know, get there as fast as I could and, and move on from there. And I think I kind of had a sense of like things happen, some things are out of our control and I kind of surrendered to the experience of travel. Yeah, which I have to say in this moment in time when travel is so much more complicated and unpredictable than it has been for so long, that what I kind of consider the traveler's mindset is so much more important than ever. But I, but I also think it's one of the great gifts of travel is it does teach you that, you know, it, being flexible and surrendering to what's not in your control is often kind of where the magic happens and how you have to get through things. So. And, and do you remember some of those earliest places that you went? Uh, well, yeah, I grew up in Northern California and um, my dad at that time was flying the DC-10 and he did a lot of Asia routes, um, but we didn't go to any Asia trips. I think being little, I think they were like, hmm, jelly would be too much. The first real inner, like European trip that we took um, would have been a trip that we took to Germany and Switzerland when I was about six. And my mom had me and my sisters and we had a neighbor that was from Germany. And so we kind of went with another family mom with her two girls. And we did this kind of like road trip. My mom tells these stories, which are hilarious now um, about all of us getting on the plane. And then of course, everyone being in a very deep sleep by the time we landed um, wherever we needed. I think we flew through Heathrow, but then we had to go on to Germany and just her being a, a, a young mom with three little kids and also her little toiletry case and her stuff that she was carrying on snacks and whatever. And, and having the kindness of strangers and people helping us through the airport. And um, so that's one of them. And then we had just like tons of pictures of us all like crammed into a tiny little car and just traveling to all of the castles and the glaciers. And I just remember being such an incredible experience. Um, we had a lot of freedom just generally in the world, I think at that time, but especially in a, in a different country with, you know, with people speaking in a different language, we could get on the ferry and go wherever, wander through the towns. And um, I just remember it being a really magical time. And, uh, and we have all of these, again, little like souvenirs that we have a, a, a small cabin in Lake Tahoe and we have all these little dishes and from little places we went to in Switzerland and Austria that have the region and the the flag and the, you know, the crest. And um, it's so visceral in my memory, each and every place. Um, and then of course, my mother is from Central America. She's from El Salvador. And so also early travel definitely is connected to Central America and travel back to seeing her family in our summer times, um, sometimes on our own. My mom, I remember sent me and my older sister, who's two years older when I was probably six and she was eight um, by ourselves. And the flight was an overnight flight through LA. Um, and then at that time, I mean, the airport was tiny in El Salvador at the time, um, but, you know, to land and not necessarily know who was picking you up and who did you belong to and just the kind of, you know, I, my kids haven't flown by themselves yet. <laughs> uh, and we were off on a plane by ourselves. Uh, but I just, the smells of Central America are so vivid. Um, and, you know, just so many experiences, just the tropical rains that would happen in the summer. 
um, you know, long drives in and out of the a busy city and into the countryside. And, um, you know, I grew up riding horses and one of our cousins there had a, a, a coffee farm and um, we would just be able to get on horses and just go. And I have just such great memories, again, of just freedom and exploring and, um, you know, just you know, feeling like this was another, it's just an extension of home really. Cause I guess home is, home is, you know, wherever you have a connection. Um, yeah. so I guess my sense of self and, um, and my experience in the world all kind of, you know, evolved through those experiences traveling and being outside of my habitat, my little suburban community that I came from. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, and that's so beautifully said, cause in a way it's like to, to be a global citizen means you feel at home in the world, like the whole world is home. And I know you've said that one of the highlights of your modeling career was traveling. Are there certain things as you were older then that, you know, you learned the certain lessons that you learned from the time that you were traveling as a model that you still carry with you today? Yeah, I guess part of what I was saying in the first response about just the flexibility and the surrendering, I think I really learned because that's where I started to really travel on my own. I guess, you know, growing up, it was with, with the family and my mom, especially. And then by the time I was, I guess, 15 or so, um, my I did my first trip to Europe as a model um, and my mom came with me and we spent a month in Paris and that was wonderful. And I was so happy to have her companionship because I didn't work a lot. I did a lot of just like appointments and, but, you know, we had our plan to Paris and she had, you know, as a flight attendant, she traveled the world over many times. And so she was comfortable in a city and comfortable speaking um, a few different languages, at least enough to conversationally get us where we needed to go. So that was a really magical time. Um, as soon as I started doing it by myself, you know, I felt really independent and confident and um, sophisticated. I remember for a while when I would come back and forth to New York from um, Northern California when I was in high school, but starting to work a lot more. I remember, you know, sometimes I would be lucky and have a client, you know, put me in first class, but very rarely. And then other times I'd just be on a flight um, and wherever. And I remember just striking up conversations with people. That's something that you don't see as much now. I feel like people get on their plane and they're prepared to like have their space and their quietude. And I get that too. Like it's maybe one of the few places where we can really have that disconnect. But I kind of miss the the chance meetings that you have with people on a plane. You know, um, I mean, my parents met that way. I mean, my dad was a pilot for Pan Am after he met my mom. He was a pilot recreationally and met her when he was in sales. And then they flirted and started to date. And then he's like, you know, that wouldn't have happened. I don't think, you know, I, I, so I remember, I, I just start to remind myself now, like to just be in the moment and to be friendly and to be cognizant of all the things that are happening around me. And I'm also really mindful of the people that work on the airline. I think that's my parents, obviously, but I know a lot of the inside skinny in terms of, you know, just the hours and the layovers and um, the rules. And so I've always kind of gone overboard with being, you know, really gracious and folding my stuff and putting my garbage in a neat, tidy place. And, you know, it's actually also funny is that now that I, even when I fly anytime recently, a year ago or so, um, flight attendants will have known my father like, oh, I flew at Pan Am at the end with, my, with your dad. So there's a strange connection in the air to him and to my parents. And so it's sort of inseparable, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd say 
just applying constantly having more choice as a, like at a certain point I started realizing, okay, I could choose which airlines I can sort of dictate when I wanted to be um, in a place. And so that actually became a part of my figuring out my own voice in my career. Um, right. Like I, I need this amount of time to recover before I go to work. There was a, a period of time where you literally would get off the plane in Europe and go straight to a studio and you can do that at 17 or 18, but it just becomes harder and harder. I mean, today a red eye will put me out of commission for like a week. Um, but I used to have to do that all the time. And um, I had some tricks in the trade, you know, again, from my dad, he would get onto a certain kind of, you know, time zone before taking a flight. And I started to adapt that similar kind of thing. Um, and then found also like my trick with jet lag, it's not really a trick, but I've sort of convinced myself that, you know, there are some times that you don't want to sleep, but you're still resting your body. And so to just get in more of a meditative space. And so I found like, again, I don't fight it. I know it's going to be, um, I know one thing, like some things will make it easier than other things, like getting onto the schedule as fast as possible, not drinking in the air, like certain things are going to make it easier, but I've sort of, um, I think figured out how to like, okay, well, again, this is going to happen. So what, how do I make the best, the most of it? And so let me just keep reading my book or let me meditate or let me just lay here and relax my body as best I can so that I can at least be somewhat rested um, for whatever I'm preparing for. Yeah, no, those are actually exactly the same tricks that I use for jet lag is trying to get ahead of the schedule, like a few days early, waking up earlier and earlier and then staying on it. And then I do think that meditation, if you, if you can't sleep, just being in that state is almost as good. And But you're so right. I mean, I do remember when I was younger, having conversations with people on a plane that I wouldn't have now. And I mean, years ago, I met a woman, I was flying from Denver to someplace in Wyoming on a small plane. And I met a woman who'd gone on safari with Hemingway. And it was like, one of the most fascinating people that I had met. But, it, you know, now you would never strike up a conversation with a person next to you. And we used to do that all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's such a sad part of our, the way our culture has kind of evolved, right? Like, um, we're all, I don't know, I don't know, less open for sure, way too guarded. I mean, I guess there's reasons for that too, but you do have to be somewhat open if you're, if you know, the mindset of a traveler or a global citizen, as you say, you know, you have to kind of, you know, you, I think that's what sort of separates us from those who are not those things. Yeah. Um, is that willingness to be open. And there are people that have to fly and have to travel, but they don't like it. Um, and then there's those of us who just love it. And, and if you get the chance to do it, you're going to do anything you can to make it more enriching and more exciting and fun and adventurous. Yeah, no, definitely. So what was your journey from your first career in modeling to founding Every Mother Counts? And, and what have been the biggest challenges and rewards leading a nonprofit? Gosh, I mean, I started early on, started to explore a little bit in philanthropy, I would say, you know, um, you know, trying to figure out like, getting more aware of different issues and, and causes um, growing up in the 80s, certainly HIV AIDS was a, a, a really big issue of, of our time still is. Um, and I knew a lot of people early on in the fashion industry. So I feel like the industry as a whole kind of really rallied and still does, um, you know, 
to be this force for good and to you know raise awareness and to raise funds and to just elevate um, and sort of destigmatize certain things. So that was kind of early, early days. I think you know just to say yes and just to participate in what was already happening. But then I started to you know get a sense of what are the things that really like specifically drove me and. Um, my mom being from El Salvador was one of the early causes that I got engaged around. Um, El Salvador was at war until the early 90s. And, um, and so when the war ended, I got an opportunity to participate in an organization that was trying to bring back tourism to El Salvador, but also to um, kind of ignite a cultural exchange kind of program with artists. And it seemed really fun and exciting. It was an excuse to get back um, down there after a period of time. And then I felt like, oh, I, you know, I'm, I'm actually in a position where I have some, um, I have, you know, something to offer in terms of, you know, a name or um, a voice. And so I could be helpful there. And it felt connected to where I came from. And then soon after that, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer, and I'd been a smoker in my teens and early 20s as well. And so um, once he passed away, uh, I got really engaged in public health um, around that issue. And I think that's what was the kind of building blocks of, of maternal health and every mother counts ultimately, because I started to do advocacy in DC, um, a lot of public service, a lot of, um, you know, just speaking out at the time, there's a lot of uh, opportunities to testify uh, in these tobacco hearings that were starting to become pretty popular. And um, I just told my story. I told my story of losing my dad. I told my story of being a smoker and my own addiction um, challenges. I told um, the story of loss because my dad died at 63. So really, really young. Um, and that became a really incredible healing opportunity, but also a great way to educate other people and for people, you know, and, and I still have people that tell me today, I quit smoking because of you. I remember the people say you did. I mean, like, it's still one of the re most rewarding things I've ever done. And so by the time I became a mom, um, and then experienced a postpartum complication after the delivery of my daughter, um, that became the next thing. It was a really personal ex experience, but the, I think the steps of exploring philanthropy, exploring, using my voice, getting, um, well-versed in an issue and understanding it to the extent that I could feel comfortable speaking out about it. Um, using my own personal story and and testimony to to I think contribute um, in a meaningful way that I already experienced and so by the time that happened around my um, my delivery and my birth it was like oh okay well here's an issue that people aren't talking about it it wasn't like tobacco when I started talking about tobacco like it was really something that wasn't on the radar um, for most people and so I started having those conversations with friends and peers and then I started to use um, you know whatever relationship I had to sort of open the door and try to share more about what I was learning and then I I went deep I, I went back to school to work in a master's in public health I um, got to travel with a few organizations that I was familiar with and had been asked to do work with before but hadn't had the time and suddenly it's like the right thing at the right time and then with this new lens on the world through a mother's eyes I think it really just all kind of came together and um, I got to go back down to El Salvador with CARE which is an NGO that is massive and um, their origin place of the CARE package um, in fact which is which is cool because it sort of happened after World War II and my mom was a longtime supporter of CARE and so to have the opportunity to go down there with them after I had my first child and when I was pregnant with my second child I think that's where it all kind of came together, this idea of, you know, had I had uh, the complication I'd had with my daughter and some of the communities that we were visiting in El Salvador, 
um, I probably would not have survived because we were far away from um, from San Salvador and a major hospital that could handle an emergency obstetric scenario. And all of these things started, you know, coming together. Not that I had to be in El Salvador because certainly that could be the case here in the United States and many parts of the country, but it just all came together. It's my mother's birth country. It's where I spent my childhood. I had this birth experience with my daughter and then I was there pregnant. You know, I went to work figuring out how I was going to be able to do um, all that I could. And so again, going back to school, I started to film No Woman, No Cry, um, where we filmed in Tanzania, Guatemala, um, Bangladesh, and in the United States, looking at challenges and solutions around maternal health care. And it came out in 2010, the Tribeca Film Festival. And um, I thought at that point, like, this is my film, this looks doing my contribution is kind of bringing some of the voices and faces to the statistics that were just starting to be talked about um, on a global stage. And then I realized, of course, it wasn't the end, it was the beginning. Um, and it became really clear that audiences wanted to know, like, now that I know, what can I do? And everyday people, not just policymakers or, you know, heads of state were saying, I care about this issue. I've had a personal complication or I've known someone who's had a complication, like what can we do? Um, and so Every Mother Counts was really created in for that reason, just to engage everyday citizens to like share their stories, be a part of, of the solution, um, to help advocate for change uh, at the local, you know, state, national or global level. Um, and so we're really focused on childbirth, pregnancy, childbirth and postpartum, but honestly, the entire experience, um, of motherhood, uh, could do with some change and some, um, some love and care. And so we are adding as much of that to what we do and the messaging of every mother counts, um, with that, as we're still trying to fight for policy change that will make, um, you know, at least access to equitable, maternity care, safe maternity care, um, just more, you know, more eligible for more people. Yeah, no, you're so right. I mean, and even, you know, listening to you and thinking about how in some ways your, your own mother empowered you as you went out into the world, right? It's, it's that sort of the idea of birth and motherhood being a, a tool of empowerment and, um, and, and good forces, is, is exactly right. And it has been removed too often. I, I'm curious how you've been working on this now for more than 10 years, how your, your sort of approach to it has evolved, but also what parts of it have stayed the same. Cause I mean, it started with the film, but storytelling and narrative um, is so much about how you affect change. So how's it changed and how's it the same? Yeah, I guess uh, the biggest changes would be that when I first learned about it, um, you know, most people, when you would talk about maternal mortality, would, they would just presume that this is like outside, you know, it's, a, it's an over there problem, right? Of course, Sub-Saharan Africa has the highest rates of maternal mortality. Of course, Southeast Asia would have the second highest rates. Um, Latin America, of course. But no one really, um, still to this day, people are shocked all the time when I tell them how we're doing and that we're the one of only two industrialized countries in the world with a rising maternal mortality rate. That's pretty disgraceful. Um, so I guess that's the same and yet different because there has been some traction here and the just the, the issue itself has become a lot more of a, um, not as a 
course, as much as it should be, but it's it does get to the front pages of newspapers from time to time. There have been stories um, like Serena Williams' birth story that really elevated this issue, particularly for um, for women of color, because here you have a, a woman of color who could not be more strong and empowered, who also wasn't being listened to. And so it really, it really touched a chord, I think, with regard to this issue. The other piece that I think is really interesting is, you know, I was really looking at it as a student and as I was becoming um, more sort of entrenched in the maternal health world was that, you know, human rights, the sort of human rights approach to um, this issue, like maternal health is a human right, health as a human right. Like these are things that um, I think outside of the United States or outside of the West are, you know, human rights are still so um, important. And I think sometimes we take them for granted in the West. Um, and when you have the conversation around human rights, there's not this sense of like, what does that mean here? And so I guess that's still something we talk about, human rights and the right to health, right to maternal health. Um, but the, the language has been slightly more nuanced now in that equity, while it's connected, it's still its own thing. And so really, um, the emphasis on equitable access. Um, what does equity mean? I mean, when you look at COVID, for example, or anything, um, you know, like the the health disparities that exist, particularly for people of color or marginalized communities, wherever um, you are in the world, it's just, you know, it's just it's just so unfair um, and unequitable. Um, and so, I guess there's nuance in language, if anything. Um, and then there has been some real progress around policy and advocacy, I would say. I mean, when I started out in the organization, we, the film and another big report that came out around the same time inspired one of the first pieces of legislation looking at maternal mortality in the United States and really trying to make um, reporting consistent across all of the states. And um, just the fact that that didn't exist already was surprising to me. Like if you, if we don't have consensus on what we define a maternal death and when that happens or what you know, what, what, what's the criteria of calling it that? Um, and how are we going to understand the data and how will we really be able to, to change things? And so I feel like that was a big piece. It took eight years to pass. Um, and then now in the last few years, there's never been so many bills or pieces of legislation introduced, reintroduced. And then obviously on the other side, you have things like what just happened in Texas and you're like, okay, we have this progress. And then you look, you turn around and you know, it's like you back two steps and, you know, <laughs> or 10 or a hundred. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a, that's a hard thing. I don't think I've completely um, gotten my head around what that is and what that's going to mean. I mean, even just during COVID or just the last administration, you know, when you think about sometimes how long it takes to actually see the impact of certain choices or um, policy changes, it can take like, it can take years to see. So we see things happening in real time. We know that we don't really know the magnitude of those changes on people that already have very little choice and very little um, decision-making power to, you know, that just get swung along with, you know, the ebbs and flows and the highs and the lows. And it's, that's the hardest part because, you know, I think consistency is really important and you start to do work where you're trying to address um these kinds of challenges like I've found personally and I found the organization we're really committed to being consistent like we believe in the continuum of care and the birth experience and we believe in the continuum of care of the donor 
um, the consistency of a donor and a person, like a, an entity that can be there um, when there's a hurricane, when there's a, a cyclone, when there's a war. I mean, you know, you really have to, you know, you have to step up and step in in those critical moments when it's even harder than it is on a normal day. Yeah. And and yeah, I'd be curious, you, I mean, you talked about we have these ideas between what we think of in the West and in the East and in other countries. And I'd be curious how your travels has shaped your sort of thinking as a humanitarian, because obviously you've had a lot of exposure and that can bring context to what you're doing. For sure. I mean, in all my travels, I've this other beautiful thing about my first career is that I got to travel a lot and I was given the advice even beyond my parents, like to just stay in any place I could longer, like not be rushing to get back to go to the next thing. And so I really took that advice to heart and I did often linger and sort of get, you know, spend more time, um, off the beaten track, not with a larger crew and, um, you know, have those experiences and have as much of an experience of being like in the homes of people, like being invited as a guest. Um, and, and so, yes, that ability to just go anywhere, to seek that out, to be open to those kinds of experiences and then, um, to keep relationships, like, you know, not with everybody, certainly, but with a lot of people, I mean, um, my partner that I help that works with us when we traveled to Tanzania, for example, I met him when I went to Tanzania the first time in 1990 on a fashion shoot. And I've gone back, I don't know, a dozen times or more, half of those with every mother counts to, you know, to travel and do various things. And every time I spend time with him and his family, and I know everyone who as the company has grown over time, like we're just really, really close. And, and so, yeah, I mean, nurturing those relationships and, um, and, you know, it, I think I had a real appreciation of culture and, you know, I, I hope, although it's really hard not to, cause it takes time to build trust and you don't get just invited into a home usually right out of the gate. But I think there's a sort of, you know, I think people can sense when you're, when you're present and when you are respectful and when you are, you know, not feeling like, you know, there's a wall and it's hard to do that as a traveler. I mean, I think there is more and more people seeking to have that, really like engaged experience. And I know that's a lot what, of what you focus on, but it's hard. It's, it's, it's hard to do. Um, and I think for people to have that expectation that it happens that easily is, is not fair. Um, and yet I still think it's something that we should really encourage um, because I think in order to understand um, any culture, any perspective outside of your own, you really have to try to walk in the shoes yeah, I mean, as you said, it's like that that going into something with an open heart and an open mind, people see that, they get it, and they, you know, want to, and most people want to meet you with the same. So it, I totally agree it works that way. Um, and are there certain trips or places that, you know, whether you were modeling or you went personally or you went with Every Mother Accounts that, you know, really had just a, a particularly profound impact on you? Gosh, so many. I guess Tanzania, because I mentioned it before, comes to mind a lot. Um, I think it, it made an impact on me the first time I, I went there. Um, I flew over Kilimanjaro, you know, from a small airport to get to another airport. And, you know, it happened to be that the skies were all open. I, I um, grew up with my dad being a big fan of Hemingway. And my dad was fascinated with Africa. And so to fly in a little plane over it and think like, 
I'm coming back and I'm going to climb that. And so I did, you know, the next time, a couple of years later, I got to do that. And, and then I found this way of coming back. Like when I, you know, I didn't know that Tanzania would continue to be in my life, but of course, because there's so many places I want to see and go, but to also go back to a place over and over is such a beautiful thing too. And to keep discovering new parts of it, it's a huge country and it's diverse in so many ways. But um, by the time I was looking at, you know, making no woman no cry and knowing that sub-Saharan Africa was a place that had um, high rates of maternal mortality. And I thought, you know, let me, I'd also seen the president at the time who was one of the, he was the leader of the African union. And he was very sort of outspoken about maternal and infant health. Um, this was Kikwete. And, um, I, uh, I thought, okay, well, I actually have a history there. So again, kind of like my El Salvador trip to care, it was like, oh, well, this actually makes even more, it makes more sense now because there's a connection, but I also want to go there because there's a political will. And, um, it's a country that while it has high rates of maternal mortality, it's surrounded by countries that have the worst scenarios. So let's start with a place that has, um, the possibility for change. And so to go there and have relationships where I could kind of, you know, reach out to my friends and say, can you help me? And can you help me? And they helped open doors. And, you know, again, when you're trying to build trust quickly to have someone who's Tanzanian open that door for you and say, you know, here, it's a hospital, like, you know, like, here's the director of this hospital here, speak to the minister of health, like those kinds of relationships matter a lot. I just have a good sense of community there. And then Central America also, I mean, I, I hadn't been in El, to El Salvador in a while and I brought my mom on an Every Mother Counts trip two years ago to Guatemala, um, where we have partners and do some work and I love going there as well. Um, and then we sort of tacked on the trip to El Salvador right afterwards. And just, again, it was just to be with my mom and to have that connection to her and to the to the place and to have so many family members, you know, there. And, um, it just, it's, it's so special. I mean, that's true family, but I feel almost as close to my family in Tanzania at this point. Um, yeah. So many places. I mean, India is another place that I love right before lockdown. I just come back from India and um, that's a place that I didn't want to go as a model. I really wanted to save it because I, I studied comparative religion and um, Eastern philosophy in college. And so when, and I was I've always been a big yoga practitioner. So when I went to India, I was like, this is my, this is like my, my treat that I've been working towards my whole life. And I did a whole, like, I did think I spent a month there the first time I went and, you know, went to all of these pilgrimage sites. And I mean, it was just such an, like, you know, it was like, you know, the expression when in Rome, I use so often and I take it to heart because in India, the first trip I was barefoot everywhere. We were up in the North, um, uh, in Bajunath, it was freezing cold. And then we swam in the Ganges and <laughs> cut to years later when I go with, uh, you know, a group of advisors from the Harvard School of Public Health. These people looked at me like, you what in the Ganges? <laughs> As they're using their antiseptic wipes. <laughs> I was like, well, it was really north, close to the source. I promise it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't near the gap. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I mean, I love to like, just the, I guess it's a little bit harder. I guess I was not even a mom at that time. I guess I'm slightly um, more aware of the fact that I have dependents at home or sometimes not with me that I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe I won't climb that mountain today. But, you know, I, that's my, I think a real part of myself, my spirit and, and like what makes me love travel and 
is like those adventures and, and really like living life in that way where you're not thinking about anything else. And so, you know, it's one of the things as a mother, you, you have to kind of compromise and know that there are people that are waiting for you to come home and (laughs) maybe don't, maybe don't ride that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I like tell my kids after I climb the cliff in Ethiopia barefoot and they're like, okay, mom, that might not have been a good idea, but it's like, I'm okay. (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so we have share a big spirit, um, and towards how we think about travel and love travel. Um, do you have advice for listeners about, um, you know, who are really looking to make more of an impact with their travels, whether it's through their time or their voices or their tourist dollars or where they go that, um, you think you could share? I mean, I, I really encourage families, especially to have those experiences together where they, where, you know, some sense of service is incorporated, but it, not in that way that feels like, cause it's really hard to just kind of sweep in and spend one day volunteering or one day feeding at a school, you know, like those things there, they might be meaningful, but I don't know that they're going to be um, as impactful to the community. And I, so just thinking about just, you know, I always love that um, adage or expression about leaving a place better than you found it. Um, and you can't really do that when you swoop in. But I do think there are ways, like you said, where there's ways to contribute to the community. And if you do do a visit, there's always this exchange. I find that I always want to have an exchange. Even when I go visit hospitals, I always offer, can um, can I, can our colleagues, can we donate blood? Can we, is there something that you might be in need of that you, that like we can offer? Um, some real sense of exchange, I think has to happen. And, you know, another thing like, you know, personally, I've tried to do with my kids because most of the travel, I guess, that we do is somewhat connected to every mother counts at this point, or there's some maternal health component. Um, and so they've gotten to see firsthand and we've done things like paint murals, but we've not tried to come in and like we're painting the mural, but we've tried to kind of support an artist in the community to do that. And then we've gotten to participate in some small way for the day that we're there. Um, but to kind of I don't know, something that will last beyond, I feel this way, even just with gifts and giving with friends and family, I like to, I like to offer something that will be kind of a memento of me, but also with them, not like, not just like, remember me, here's a photograph of me, but really something that feels like the intention of something from my heart or something that I care about that will last um, beyond that visit in the time that you spend more, you know, and I think about what really needs to be left behind. And so I've kind of learned over time, depending on where I'm going, really thinking about what who I'm going to be with and what, what might they need. And it's also really important to think about not just bringing things from the States, but actually thinking about purchasing those things in country. I think the commodities thing is really important in a lot of our countries that are lesser resourced. And so, you know, sometimes, you know, we'll go to a marketplace in Haiti or in Tanzania and purchase blankets and things like that for the clinics that we visit, but hairbrushes, I mean, Every woman, when I meet women in villages, a hairbrush, a comb, that goes a long way. So it's sometimes really simple things. Um, but I think it's just that kind of, you know, that, that and, and you do need a guide, right? You need someone that says, these are things that you might want to consider um, and why. And then, of course, once you see, you understand. But I think it's, it's really important to have that guidance. I think a lot of us... Um, you know, we think, oh, we're being so helpful. Let's bring candy. Let's bring, and you're like, 
what child needs candy, especially a child yeah. that doesn't have access to dental hygiene. Don't bring yeah. candy. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. And I, and again, I think that's where you can always cultivate a relationship with somebody on the ground, whether it's the hotel or your guide or the person who's helping you go and just say, before I go, what, what actually is needed and, and what would be the best way to have a, a positive impact. Um, and if people want to get involved with Every Mother Accounts, I mean, I know you do trips, um, you know, what are, what are the best ways for people to get involved in different ways? Yeah, I mean, our, our website, everymothercounts.org is definitely the best um, sort of place to not only learn more about the issue and the work that we do and where and how we do it, but um, really we we try to create these opportunities for people to engage. So we do a lot of events. Um, we did a lot of virtual events during COVID. We'll continue to do a lot of virtual events because you can reach more people. And a lot of our events are based around conversations and around content um, and films and examples of models of care and really seeing and hearing women um, in their communities sort of talk about their experiences. And so um, we have a lot of that just available on our website. Um, every film we've made is on there. We have, um, we have a, we created a COVID guideline during COVID, which we've continued to update. So it's got like very up-to-date, very useful information around um, health. And then uh, our Take Action page has a lot of information around the advocacy and policy efforts. And then we also, connected to the the trips, which we've always tried to do, um, because I think it really does make a difference when people have been supporting or want to know more to really have that firsthand experience. Um, and yet, obviously, it's limiting how often we can do it and how many people we can bring. Um, so trying to make that experience feel more accessible, and I'm sure this is something you've been grappling with too, like how do you bring people and the places together even when that's not possible. And so we're still trying to, you know, figure that out and make um, the experiences more accessible. But we do a lot of running and racing, which happened also kind of accidentally about 10 years ago um, when we were offered 10 spots to the New York City Marathon. And I hadn't really called myself a runner um, since I was a child that I thought, if we have 10 spots and this is my small little organization that I'm starting, I definitely have to do it. And so I ran my first marathon and I'm now training for my, my ninth, actually I couldn't do my ninth last year. So this is my ninth. We should have been my 10th and I could have been done. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, uh, so we do, we do a lot of races and create a lot of teams, um, not just marathons, but half marathons and, and five Ks and things, because I learned when I was training for that first marathon, that because distance is a real barrier for women to access healthcare around the world, there was such a lovely way to connect what we do, um, to running and that 5k is a minimum distance. Maybe a woman will have to walk to have basic care. And that 26.6 is average that she might have to travel for emergency obstetric or anything more than basic care. And so it just became really a great way to communicate what we did and why we do it. Um, and, and we've just developed it. It's become a great way for people to sort of become a part of it. Um, and then we also have done races around the world. So we have run in Haiti, um, where we have a couple of partners we've run in Tanzania. That's what we'll be doing when we go, um, early next year. Um, there's a Kilimanjaro marathon and half marathon, and it's such a great experience because for anyone who's listening, who's a runner, when you run, you know, one of the world races or a race in a big city like New York city, you know, there's 
30,000 people, 60,000 people. I mean, they're massive, but if you do a race in, in, at Moshi and Kilimanjaro, like it's a couple thousand people. And so the experience is so incredible. And you, you know, in that particular race, you start at the campus, but you go into the kind of village areas and then you end up in stadium. So it's this like incredible experience. So uh, I'm so excited to go back. We weren't able to go this year. So we pushed it to next year. And I'm just to be planning this trip again is just, it's like giving me life. <laughs> um, oh, the wow. races are another way that people can participate. And then we also have a lot of like, you know, product partnerships and fun collaborations um, with companies that are usually women owned, women led, not always, but we we really take pride in the fact that I think 87% of our partners are women owned and led. And um, and they usually are making products that are there to make mom's lives, women's lives easier, better, safer. Um, and so, yeah, there's lots of ways to engage and, and to learn more. And, and we always encourage people to share their stories too. I think it's as important to share positive birth stories and um, hopeful stories as it is to share the ones where things don't go the right way because we can all better prepare our sisters, yeah. our friends for this for this phase in our lives. It's so meaningful to so many. That's amazing. Um, now I know you've done a lot of work in places like Afghanistan and I, I did want to ask you, cause it's been such a difficult time, um, for women and girls around the world, particularly there. How do you choose where to invest your resources, um, with so much need all over the world? Yeah, it's, it, that's like the hardest part of, I think, the work in a lot of ways, because the need is so, it's so great. Um, you know, I, at a certain point, realized we couldn't be everywhere, but we could sort of, you know, try to be in uh, enough places geographically, a uh, place where we could really kind of have a sense of the region, at least, and, and, and bring, you know, some awareness to some of the challenges in that particular area. Um, but one way we've been able to work outside of those core grantee partnerships is um, through our emergency fund, which we started in 2015 after the Nepal earthquake. But I believe that network is so important that when events happen that I can pick up the phone or I can send an email and I can say, hey, you're here, what's happening on the ground? How can we help? And so through this emergency fund, we've been able to, to do more. And you know, Afghanistan is a place that I considered filming for No Woman, No Cry, but it just wasn't possible at the time back in 2008. It just was too dangerous. Um, and I had been there in early 2002, um, actually, crazily, so early after the war started. Um, but I went back with UNICEF and the Today Show to do a story about um, girls coming back uh, to school in Kabul after, you know, having to leave to escape the Taliban. Um, and so when these events started happening, I mean, I've always kind of had followed this because I had this, you know, experience there. I've just, you know, I, again, I have people, I've been in the homes of people. I, I, I have like faces and names and, um, I've tried to stay in touch over the years. And then, um, when these most recent events happened, it just brought it all back and it felt like we have to do something. Um, and so luckily, again, I have a network of people. So I reached out to people immediately and two organizations um, that immediately came to mind. One is Too Young to Wed, um, which was started by an incredible photojournalist, Stephanie Sinclair, who uh, I think her series about child brides um, was uh, awarded a Pulitzer Prize. And um, 
so I, I reached out to her and we ended up making an emergency fund grant. And then um, uh, Zaina Zalbi, Zaina Zalbi, uh, Women for Women. She started Women for Women. She's mm-hmm. from Boston. She has worked in the region for years and years. And so I, I knew she was working on some evacuation um, plans. And so we quickly were able to jump in and help. Um, and so, you know, in those instances, it's now we have the ability and we also have a community of people who now when a, a disaster happens, they come to us and say, what are you doing in Texas? <laughs> what are you doing in Haiti? And we are usually, if there's a relationship, we will be doing something or at least we're looking into it at the time. We, we've learned with emergencies um, is that sometimes there's that initial devastation and then there is like the second wave the third wave the fourth wave and oftentimes our partners don't even respond right away because they're so in the moment of trying to navigate this just happened in new orleans with louisiana's hurricane um so we kind of reach out to check in and then we wait and then we wait to see what their needs are and then that's how we kind of rally around them it's like our partners are the experts in their communities. And I think sometimes, again, going back to that sort of when you're well-intentioned and you want to just send clothes and diapers, and there's usually not the infrastructure or the manpower, person power to be able to like distribute it. So it's best to hold off and wait and get a needs assessment from the ground and then figure out how best to support. Is there anything else on your travel wish list? You've seen so much of the world, but are there is there some place, sort of the way India was out there calling for you that's like that still? Yeah, still kind of a lot of places. Um, I am pretty interested still, like some like South America as a whole. It's just so. Um, there's so much to see. And I've spent some time in Argentina and a little bit of time in Peru. Um, but I'm really interested in Colombia. Um, uh, yeah, there's just so much Venice. I'm like, there's a lot of places hard to go to right now, but I, I really am. And there's so much there that I'd love to explore. And I haven't had as much of an excuse to go down for work or every mother counts yet, but it's definitely on my list, both personally and for every mother counts. Um, to explore. And then, um, I don't know, the East is so vast still. I, I have an interest in like Cambodia, Bhutan. Um, when we were last in India, we spent some time in Assam. And so you're really, really close to that whole region. And, um, it's just such a totally different, um, you know, like geographic, I mean, it's so green and lush and so beautiful. Um, and it's so spiritual. I mean, I have to say, I, I can relate to what you're saying about India, because to me, it is, it's like a whole other world where there's an extra sensory part of us that's alive in India. But in Bhutan, it was like, it's like a fairy tale kingdom, because it's so spiritual. I mean, if, if unicorns exist, they exist in Bhutan. It's just that kind of a place. Oh, wow, that sounds amazing. Um yeah, we're thinking there's a big midwifery conference in, in uh, Bali next year that's been postponed a few times, and we have a partner in Bali. Um, uh, I mean, Bali sounds so glamorous compared to what um, population she's serving, but it is such an incredible organization, and so we're trying to think about that um, in 2023, actually. Um, but yeah, the, the East is, there's so much. And I've been, I mean, I've been to Thailand. I've been, um, I've been to, you know, Singapore. I've been to Japan. I've been like those places, but I, I really, there's just so, so much, but I do have to find, I have to be more strategic. I think about the way I build in my 
personal travel on top of every other travel because I do, like I said before, the consistency is so important in terms of the work. And yeah, I don't know. My kids are, I have a sophomore and a senior now. Maybe my, my life is going to change a lot in the next couple of years and it might make it a little a little easier. Yeah. I mean, now you're in that zone probably as a family of just making the most of the vacations that you have left with big chunks of time with them because that becomes harder. I know. They say you have to make it exciting, more exciting to be with you than not with you. And so, challenge <laughs> <laughs> <Alan> accepted. <laughs> um, so, can I ask you one last question, which is um, if you had to think about what you think the greatest gift of travel has been to you or the, the greatest lesson of it, and we talked about flexibility, but, um, you know, and, and you clearly are at home in the world and have family all over the world and networks and, and are very much a global citizen. But if you think about what travel could offer your children, maybe that's a different way of putting it. What would you wish to do for somebody else? I think, I mean, I, I, I've always said this, but I feel like it, it's even more important now. It's just that perspective. It's like, I, I think whenever anything happens to me or in my community or in my, you know, my, my like New York city, right. If something happens, I immediately think about like how, what's the equivalent somewhere else. So I think by having that exposure you're like, you have a perspective of not just me and not just here and what I can see. I mean, really starting to feel like to like to have that connection in that sense of we are, you know, we are a global community and um, our actions and the choices we make and the policies that we support or don't support, they really have an impact. And yeah, it's that, it's that perspective, like in a minute, you know, to again, come from, India in a pandemic, that experience in just those couple of days, and then to see as things got easier and at least more clear in New York City, it went the complete opposite back in India. Um, and so there was this sense of like, I really, I feel like I'm there still. And we've kind of been through it and been together, at, but, and yet I also know how much harder this kind of um, event impacts certain communities that I've spent time in, you know, just the densely populated communities and, you know, how people just aren't counted. And, um, you know, when you think about numbers and you think about transparency and you think about like what the reality is and what people are told, it's just, that's the part, you know, we all have it to some extent, but I, I think I really have that sense of, you know, what, how, where, where, what it would feel like somewhere else or, or sometimes here, like just, it could be just as bad and is just as bad for so many. And I think just that, that connection and empathy. Well, no, you're exactly right. Empathy comes from perspective or perspective adds to our empathy. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, thank you, Christy. This has been awesome. Um, thank you for what you do for, for women everywhere. Cause it is so incredibly inspiring. Um, and at some point we do have to go on a trip. I'm not running with you, but, but I would love to go and be with you and do some of the work that you do alongside you. That would be amazing. It sounds like Bhutan has to go higher on my list again. Oh yeah. Get there. Oh my gosh. They have that, you know, gross national happiness quotient. I mean, it, it's just such a wonderful place. 
Next week, I'll be welcoming a returning guest, my dear friend Elizabeth Lesser. I was so excited that Elizabeth, who's the co-founder of the Omega Institute and a super soul advisor to Oprah, agreed to come back and have another conversation with me. Many will remember that Elizabeth was one of my first guests in season one, but I knew there was much more to dig into, and there sure was. I hope you'll join us. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review it wherever you're listening. Send us your travel stories, lessons, tips, and questions by emailing us at globalconversations at indigari.com. Head over to our website at www.indigari.com to learn more about how to join our community of passionate travelers and to check out our other virtual content. Lastly, find us on social media at Indigari Travel for more travel content and updates.